Right. The ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the days of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Let us uh, pray and ask our God to help us maybe gather perspective and ideas in this whole area of evangelism through our churches. Our Father, we thank you for providing that session with Pastor Hendricks and the encouragement and perspective that he shared with us. And we do pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to use that as we ruminate upon those things to help us, Father, in seeking to find ways and create ways to reach out with the gospel of Christ where we live. We feel our weakness and we we know our need of your Holy Spirit to guide us in all the principles of your Holy Word to do the task that you've given us to do. We pray that you would help us now as we consider the, the wonderful uh, historical example that we find in the, in the ministry of the tabernacle and its pasture. We pray that we would be encouraged and blessed as we think upon these things. We pray through Christ. Amen. You know, there, I don't want to presume the, that all of everybody here has read uh, extensively uh, into the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I'm sure uh, most everybody's read something. You've certainly heard quotes uh, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon through um, hopefully, well, even uh, in our earlier session, but he was born on June 19, 1834, in Kelvindon, England. And I hope to be able to say some things that might bring to remembrance those of you that have read him and studied him and the work of the tabernacle, and maybe it will be a help to uh, uh, to everybody to consider that situation that we don't want to necessarily hold up as a model, but at least to gain perspective in terms of how we might uh, be helped in our own ministries and, and churches. Here was a young man that came to the city as a country boy. He did not like the city. The New Park Street Church was in decline. It, was, it existed in the laboring class of South London. They had really declined, and there was only 150 of them that were uh, occupying a 1,200-seat auditorium. There was no public transportation in that day, and mostly it was surrounded by dingy, gloomy, dirty houses. He was 17 year, years old when he was asked to come to London to occupy the pulpit for a six-month probationary period. And upon arriving that weekend, that Saturday evening, to preach the first Sunday, he was placed in a boarding house and th there was no offer of hospitality. And that Sunday, only 80 people came. But when he preached, they were frozen to the pews. And with every Sunday he preached, more came. And it was not long until the congregation overruled the plan and issued him a permanent call 
though it was not unanimous. Only after three years, or after three, only three years, uh, 3,000 people were packing the 1,200-seat auditorium. In 1861, only seven years after he began his pastoral ministry there, the church moved into the 5,500-seat Metropolitan Tabernacle. <clears throat> Though the building could only seat 5,500, they found ways at times to seat 6,000. And the Metropolitan Tabernacle flourished in one of the poorest sections of London. After 40 years of Spurgeon's ministry, the membership, uh, after 40 years, it went from 150 on December 8, 1853, to 5,311 at the time of his death in 1892. It was an urban ministry, an inner city ministry. The church had 66 separate ministries. The majority of those 66 ministries were directed to the poor in inner city London. The poorest, the lowest class, the destitute, the homeless, the unemployed, that's who Spurgeon wanted to reach. He had a pastor's college with 93 students, eventually, and the purpose of that pastor's college was to train urban pastors to plant urban churches. 102 churches were planted in or around London. Ninety of them were close to downtown. There were 23 mission stations, 27 Sunday schools with 600 teachers and 8,000 students. They also built almshouses, orphanages, schools, homes for widows. And, of course, they published his sermons, 3,000. 561 of his sermons their pastor preached from 1855 until his death in 1892. That pastor's college was raised up to train young preachers, and it was specifically to train them to preach and to win souls. Pastor Spurgeon paid for the first student himself. Tuition and food were free, and they were given clothing, books, and spending money. In 1865, there were 93 students. That was early. Eleven years after starting the college, there were other instructors teaching mathematics, logic, Hebrew, Greek, English composition, and even astronomy and the physical sciences. They had evening classes, too. There was no public school education at that time in London, so the poorer children could not attain an education, so they expanded the education to include all. The students were trained primarily to introduce pastors for urban churches, and the goal, of course, was to reach urban city people. As a church, they also had foreign missionaries in India, China, various countries in Africa, and in Ceylon, that since 1972 has been called Sri Lanka. They published that monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. And it started with the idea of, one, combating sin, and two, laboring for the Lord. The Nehemiah set of a sword to fight and a trowel to work with and build. And it had three purposes. One, as a way to advocate church doctrine and church order. Two, as an organ of communication for the tabernacle's plans to work for the Lord. And three, as a means to arouse believers to action, to sound the trumpet, and to lead the soldiers into the fight. 
as we consider Spurgeon's amazing success, we have to recognize several things. One, we have to recognize that London was not as far gone then as the multiracial racial urban areas of the United States. Two, recognize the sovereignty of God. Charles Spurgeon had very special gifts. He wasn't, he hasn't been called the prince of preachers for nothing. What an amazing ability to preach the word, such that 3,561 of his sermons have been published. And what if he were to live today and have his own website? <laughs> and all of our people could supplement their preaching needs by his website. Well, he grew up in a very Christian environment. He read the Pilgrim's Progress by the time he was three years old. He had leadership abilities to win the trust and confidence of the people. What an amazing gift to the church. But thirdly, he was strategically placed in the most important city in the day. And many industrialized forces came of age right at that time, such as the railroad, the telegraph, and the daily newspaper. Men tried to imitate the inimitable. You can't do it. It's immature youthfulness to try. And we dare not try to copycat C.H. However, we can and we should learn of Spurgeon's vision, his views of preaching, his heart for the lost, and especially the poor, and his philosophy of church life. That means uh, to mobilize troops for outreach with the gospel. Four lessons from Pastor Spurgeon and the Tabernacle. One, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the pastor. Key ingredient, his devotional life. He was confident in the power of the gospel in his own life. He preached the gospel to himself. He himself was the daily subject of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He knew his own need for freshness. In his own soul, the excellency of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in his devotions, upon his feelings, his utterances, and his labor. He consciously looked for signs of the Holy Spirit influencing his inner man, knowing his desperate need of the Spirit's power. He did not approach preaching as a mere academic, as he would walk to the pulpit. He was repeating to himself, I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. We might think of those today. They, there might be those that, uh, if you heard someone speak that way, you'd think they're too deeper life or higher life. But such was his view of having a real consciousness of the influence of the Spirit upon his thoughts and feelings and his presentation. He did have a model family, and he was a generous, generous man with his own money. He personally supported one of the students of the college. He, he personally raised over one-third of the money to build a tabernacle from his many speaking engagements and publications. The people knew he was trying to reach them and that he didn't want their money. He wanted them. He cared for people. He took time to be with them. They knew he understood them, and he identified with them. He did not just lock himself in his study with his books. He walked the streets just talking with people, went to their houses, knew their names, including all the orphans. 
visited the sick and the dying in the cholera epidemic, taking one open door for the gospel that led to another. He was a working model for evangelism. He just didn't talk about it. He did it. His people saw it and was caught as much as it was taught and caught from him. He could truly say, imitate me in the area of personal evangelism. One thing he did, he hung posters all over London with a poem urging people to come to Christ. And if you go today to visit the tabernacle and ride the subway, when you get off in those nearby stops, you'll see signs that the tabernacle still has on the wall. As you're standing on the platform waiting for the subway, what you're reading on the, the wall across uh, the tracks are Bible verses and outlines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He started that. He, when he went into people's homes, he always expected God to work. Now, he was a free spirit. He was not bound by tradition or conventional thinking. He was creative and innovative. Respectable people were shocked. He rented the Exeter Music Hall for preaching services. It was not a religious building. All raised their eyebrows at him. and His, his pulpit rhetoric was suited to reach the common man. Why, he even cooperated with non-Baptists. He distributed literature through the Cole Portage Association, uh, referred to this morning, the Cole Porters. He set up this ministry to train men in approaching people with the gospel. He hired mostly young men who became wanted to become pastor preachers, and he hired them to be peddlers of gospel literature. The word colporter is from a French word that was coined during the Reformation, meaning peddler. And these peddlers would wear backpacks filled with Bibles and books they sold for a living. And they walked all over London, other cities and towns, and throughout the countryside. It was an evangelistic ministry. It employed those young men, got them accustomed to speaking and thinking on their feet, of presenting the gospel eyeball to eyeball with people. It was an evangelistic ministry, and it was training young men to deal personally with people. Spurgeon thought outside the box. He used the church building for multi-purposes. used the building seven days a week from seven in the morning until 11 o'clock every day. It became the center for the people's lives. They used that building so much that after six years from the time it was built, brand new, it had to be closed and renovated. It was so worn out. It had to be renovated and redecorated. They held church bazaars in it to raise money. He was a unique man. He, a pastor who walked with God and with his people. He presented himself to the common man who felt his love. Secondly, Spurgeon's vision for the church. What differentiated Spurgeon's ministry from other Baptist and nonconformist ministries? Well, basically, his basic vision. Others held to a siege mentality. Their battle cry was, circle the wagons, the Indians are coming. The church exists for its own sake. Safety, order, purity, comfort. The basic vision was to define and preserve the faith. It was fundamentally a defensive posture. 
And the result was, while the people agreed with the theology and the confession, the whole atmosphere carried the, order of stag- the odor of stagnancy. In other words, his preaching, teaching ministry was not always harping on the confession and its minute meanings, always precisely defining their theological position. Now, while Pastor Spurgeon held to and preached according to the doctrines of the confession, and he stood firm for the great doctrines of the faith, if you have not read before or in a while Ian Murray's book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, I would encourage you to do so, and you'll see the great three great controversies, doctrinal theological controversies in Spurgeon's life and ministry, and how he stood and what he believed and how it, he was committed to the truths and doctrines of the confession. But Spurgeon's goal was to excite the church with the greatness and the broadness of God's missionary purposes, Christ's lordship, and to help them to have a commitment and a confidence in the Great Commission. So he created a climate of outreach with the gospel. He preached of a church militant, an aggressive love of Christ with a mentality of love for lost people. Examples. He spoke this. We must, and he says this to his people, we must hear the cries of those whom God has given to be born unto himself by our means. We must hear them or else cry out in anguish, Give me converts or I die. Young men and old men and sisters of all ages, do you love the Lord? Get a passion for souls. Do you not see them? They're going down to hell by thousands. And as often as the hand upon the dial completes its circuit, hell devours multitudes, some of them ignorant of Christ and others willfully rejecting Him. The world lies in darkness. This great city still pines for the light. Your own friends and kinsfolk are unsaved, and they may be dead ere this week is over. Oh, if you have any humanity, let alone Christianity. If you found the remedy, tell the diseased about it. If you found life, proclaim it to the dead. If you found liberty, publish it to the captives. If you found Christ, tell of him to others. He also said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. He's saying this to his people. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unworn and unprayed for. Sometimes the very best plan would be to call all the members of the church together. He's talking to pastors about how to induce our people to win souls. And he says to pastors, sometimes the very best plan would be to call all the members of the church together, tell them what you would like to see, and plead earnestly with them that each one should become God's soul winner. Say to them, I do not want to be your pastor simply that I may preach to you, but I long to see souls saved and to see those who are saved seeking to win others for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know how the Pentecostal blessing was given. When the whole church met with one accord in one place and continued in prayer and supplication, the Holy Spirit was poured out and thousands were converted. Cannot we get together in like manner and all of us cry mightily to God for a blessing that might succeed in arousing them, calling them together and earnestly pleading with them about the matter, pointing out what you wish them to specially do and to ask our God if he would be willing to... uh, be like it would be like setting a, a light to dry fuel. Well, there's some broad outlines to Spurgeon's ministry. To Spurgeon, the urban ministry did not have a different or special class distinct from the small non-urban churches. Today, It's a special class where the approach, the jargon, the methodology have to be just right to fit the urban climate. But Spurgeon believed that a biblical ministry would address the basic needs of people no matter where they were. So he did not believe that he had a call to be an urban pastor, but he did have the gospel. There's four basic areas that he concentrated on. Number one, prayer. He prayed and his people prayed. And he wrestled with God in faith and he taught the people to do the same. Thousands came to the Met Tab each week to hear Spurgeon preach, but it was his prayers, not his sermons, that they remembered most. He taught them not to repeat often repeated phrases and tired expressions, but to pray with a reverence, but a personal familiarity, like a child coming to a parent. He exhorted his people to pray, and and through his pastoral prayers, he put an example before them of how to pray. And they learned to plead, to become crusaders besieging the heavenly Jerusalem. He believed God's power would be manifested in the life of the church in proportion to the praying of God's people. Two, Two men came one day to meet this pastor, and they met him walking out of the front door one evening, and, and they asked him, as they engaged him in conversation, Pastor Spurgeon, what is the secret of your success here? He said, follow me. He took him around the building and down the steps and down the basement, and through, looked through a window, and he said, you see about 200 people right there? That's the church heating system. That they were praying. And that's the kind of hope and dependence that he put upon the people of God to pray. The key to all the ministries was prayer. Secondly, preaching his and his people's. The second key to, besides prayer is Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching. With all the efforts around him to grow churches, Spurgeon's response was not more jazzed-up services. He hated gimmickry. He loathed the practice of doing unusual things just to draw a crowd. The ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle was certainly known for her preaching. It was central to her worship. His vision in his preaching was to recover what the church really is all about, to glorify God in the salvation of the lost. The whole orientation of the gospel was outward. His preaching was toward the lost, and to put this glorious, uncompromised gospel in the ears of as many people as possible by all means legitimate. 
His great thrust was the Gospel to the world and how He loved the Gospel. And He taught His people to love it as well. And to assume an offensive, offensive posture. He strove to have a welcoming church. He wasn't into giveaways, but to create a climate of love where it's obvious where His people showed love and interest and acceptance of all who came through the doors. He, he had His bird dogs, his, his deacons. And when visitors would come, His deacons would, would smell it out and go right to them. And they would greet them and, and welcome them and, and invite them back that night to the service with, would you please come to our home for some tea? Afterwards, you know those English, these Brits, they're always drinking tea. Huh? Come to our house, have some tea. And they would talk to those visitors about the word preached that day. He communicated to his people the gospel is alive, it's powerful and irresistible and, and will by the Holy Spirit bear fruit. He gave them a real sense of hope and confidence. He, he wanted the parishioners to always feel the love of God that stooped to save them, and, and that if it could save them, He could save anybody. And He wanted them to be able to reach out to the outsider without fear. He convinced them of the power and the grace of the Gospel. So He stirred them up to aggressive witnessing. And that evangelism includes everybody. And together. He spoke to his people pointedly about their fears about speaking to the unconverted in the city. He made much of corporate life as pulling together to reach the lost and, and helping one another to be proactive in relating the gospel to sinners. He convinced them that this holy work was everyone's job. In this one sermon on how to induce your people to win souls, he said, we want to surround ourselves, I'm sorry, we want around us, pastors, churches, we want around us Christians who are willing to do all they can to help in the work of winning souls. There are numbers of people who cannot be reached by the pastor. You must try to get some Christian workers who will buttonhole people. You know what I mean. It is pretty close work when you hold a friend by the lock of his hair and by the coat button. Absalom didn't find it easy to get away when he was caught in the oak by the hair of his head. So try to get at very close quarters with sinners. Talk gently to them until you've whispered them into the kingdom of heaven. Until you, you've told, uh, told into their ears the blessed story that will bring peace and joy to their heart. We want in the Church of Christ a band of well-trained sharpshooters who will pick the people out individually and be always on the watch for all who will come into the place, not annoying them, but making sure that they do not go away without having a personal warning, a personal invitation, and a personal exhortation to come to Christ. We want to train all our people for this service so as to make Salvation armies out of them. Every man and woman or child who is in our churches should be able to set to the work for the Lord. He also said in another sermon, soul winning explained. Further, let me commend to you, dear friends, the art of buttonholing acquaintances and relatives. If you cannot preach to a hundred, preach to one. Get a hold of the man alone and in love, quietly, prayerfully talk to him. One, say you. Well, is one not enough? 
I know your ambition, young man. You want to preach here to these thousands. Be content and begin with the ones. Your master was not ashamed to sit at the well and preach to one. And when he finished his sermon, he had hardly, uh, he had really done good to the whole city of Sychar. For that one woman became a missionary to her friends. Timidity often presents or prevents our being useful in this direction. But we must not give way to it. It must not be tolerated that Christ should be unknown through our silence and sinners unwarned through our negligence. We must school and train ourselves to deal personally with the unconverted. We must not excuse ourselves but force ourselves to the irksome task till it becomes easy. This is one of the most honorable modes of soul winning. And if it requires more than ordinary zeal and courage, so much the more reason for our uh, resolving to master it. Beloved, we must win souls. We cannot live and see men damned. We must have them brought to Jesus. Oh, then be up and doing and let the none around you die unwarned, unwept, uncared for. A tract is a useful thing, but a living word is better. Your eye and face and voice will all help. Do not be so cowardly as to give a piece of paper where your own speech would be so much better. I charge you, attend to this for Jesus' sake. And with the Cole Porter ministry, he had these men out approaching people face to face with the gospel. And in 1878, he had 94 Cole Porters that made 926,290 visits. That's almost 1 million visits in that one year, selling Bibles and tracts mostly to the unreached sections of London, but all over London. And these coal porters would go to homes and sit and talk to people in their homes or on the streets and deal with them and talk to them about their souls and encourage them on to Christ. They did much more than selling those Bible books. And, and Spurgeon instituted a Cole Porter Association annual meeting with a hearty supper and reports. So a spirit of prayer evolved. Prayer meetings were alive uh, in the whole thing. And uh, the people became attentive and hungry. And they helped one another. They stopped gossiping and spoke of good things. And a sweet spirit prevailed. Neighbors came. Spurgeon's great principle was get out of the way himself and make way for Christ's work among and through his people. And if it couldn't be done with preaching and prayer, it couldn't be done. He wouldn't give up on other. He wrestled with either. He, he wrestled with God in prayer for his power. And he taught his people to do the same, to learn to plead. He emphasized the free offer of the gospel, speaking much of the large dimensions of Christ's work. He preached on John 3.16 very strongly. And as witnesses needed to, uh, to believe, they needed to believe that God loves the whole world and has a holy passion for the whole world. And he, they, must have a burning conviction that God is sincere in his love to wicked men. And he desires their salvation with a compassionate heart. Sinners were pleaded with to come to Christ. Almost every sermon, can, sermon contained, especially toward its close, an entreaty of this nature. Warning, begging, pleading, urging the sinner to come to Christ. 
And he really saw preaching not just as an official proclamation, but as a persuasion art. He was to persuade sinners to turn to Christ. He became a pleader. He gave arguments and he gave reasons for the application of doctrinal truths to get them to move, to act, to repent, to believe, to look, to flee, to lay hold of Jesus Christ. And he made himself available every Tuesday afternoon that persons who were in trouble about their souls might seek his advice or if they had recently come to Christ could tell him of their experience. And in turn, on Tuesday evening, as the church gathered for prayer meeting, he presented the names of those he had reason to believe that they had been born again. It was then the church voted to receive those ones for baptism and church membership. And according to Dalimore, quote, that happy task was almost the only business of the church. His preaching was simple and direct, no sophisticated academic language in the pulpit. He trained himself to use the language of the people. In his preaching, illustrated points with references to life that his listeners knew. The local paper said of his sermons they were, quote, redolent with bad taste, <laughs> vulgar, theatrical, but it made people listen. He knew how to summarize the gospel quickly and how to confront men, and he much used the pronoun you told men of their sins and of the mercy available and of the immediate grace available to every heart. Thirdly, the involvement of the laity. His ministry was not just about him as an ordained officer in his pulpit. He engaged the people to serve. It was his goal to excite a spirit of outreach, a mentality of love for lost people. Pastor Spurgeon could identify the needs and the opportunities around him with church ministry, what it could address. And then he aroused the people to carry out the work. He knew how to put out a call for help through the Sword and Trowel magazine. He could describe the need. And through the prayer meeting, they could get the church to pray for it. Information and prayer. That's how the orphanage for the boys and the school, the funds came in almost immediately through those means. And he could survey the scene, what must be done, what could be done, and then he could rally the troops to get it done. He strove to create this welcoming church to always adorn themselves with the love of Christ and to buy up every opportunity to reach out to people around them. And this is how he handled the many that were coming to Christ. He enlisted the people to deal with them. There were many out on the streets on, on Sunday afternoons and people were taught to summarize the gospel quickly and to confront sinners often and told them of their sins and of God's mercy. And such involvement encouraged the people. It made them to feel like they're involved and they had a sense of ownership in the life of the body. It became a part of their hearts and consciences. And he prodded them with such a perspective and then he waited upon God to move. And fourthly, evangelism and social action. He had this holistic approach. He met benevolent needs while working for the salvation of their souls. He was a middle class minister and church in a cosmopolitan city and ended up drawing the middle working class from all over London. The poor, for the most part, did not make up the church, 
But Spurgeon had a great heart for the poor and a sympathy for the lower classes. And he had this two-pronged approach. Preach the gospel and minister to the poor together. He wanted to alleviate poverty, but not at the expense of the gospel. And his ministry to the poor was not just a tacked-on evangelistic tool. Caring for the soul and caring for the body were two individual parts of his religious expression. He wanted to see spiritual needs and physical needs met at the same time. The Christian man ought to have an open hand to relieve human necessity. And he saw that such help is a positive command for the Christian. So, almshouses. He led the church to build row houses, especially for needy widows. And they lived there free of charge. And they gave them a sum of money every week for food and clothing. Orphanages built these next to the almshouses. And with a gift of 20,000 pounds, they purchased a block of land, two and a half acres, built individual homes, put 14 boys in a home with a matron to serve as a mother, built a gym, ball fields, hospital, swimming pool. Spurgeon said with delight, quote, every boy has learned to swim. Ten years later, they put an uh, up an orphanage for girls. And again, Pastor Spurgeon knew that every one of them, he knew every one of them by name. He would go over and give out pennies to each of them. And such was his two-pronged approach of improving the living conditions of the poor and preaching for conversions. He had this holy impatience that drove him to the work and to win the lost and to help the poor. And that's what formed the atmosphere and mind of this working church that involved all the church members. People established many institutions in the life of the church ministry. Spurgeon once remarked the tabernacle was, quote, like a hive of bees. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was not, as many assumed, merely a highly popular preaching center, nor was it limited to the bulk of its activities it didn't limit it to the activity of the Lord's Day in a simple keeping up of the bare bones means of grace. It was a great working church. There were plenty of ways the people of God could express their faith in loving outreach on the Lord's Day and during the week. And the most important of these, of course, were the pastor's college, the Sunday schools, the Sunday schools that met on Sunday afternoon that employed hundreds of teachers then the almshouses, the orphanage, and the Cole Porters Association. Mrs. Lavina Bartlett had a Sunday school class. That's, where did that go? Mrs. Bartlett ended up, she had 500 people, ladies, in her Sunday school class, and she was always presenting the gospel. I won't read that to you, but... How she loved Christ and loved to present the gospel to women. And Spurgeon sent many women to her class and knew that they would learn the gospel there. Spurgeon encouraged his people to be out carrying the gospel on Sunday afternoons and evenings in other places than in the church, there by the church or, or attending the church. Many were assigned to college students, others to the more well-to-do district, but many to the slums where the conditions were deplorable. To hold a meeting, meeting in buildings where the air was foul and there was vermin, vermin that abounded. 
and where the people's clothes carried the obnoxious odor. They frequently arranged to have a group of members leave the tabernacle to, to start a new church and often with the prominent men of the body to, leave, to provide the leadership of that new church plant. There were also other institutions, the Evangelist Association, the Country Mission, the Home and Foreign Mission Society, the Sermon Loan Society, the Maternal Society that gathered gifts for expectant mothers and from the tabernacle went forth to assist them when they would become mothers. The Police Commission. Get this, the Coffee House Mission. You thought the coffee house idea was something new. They had a coffee house mission. The Loan Building Fund, the Flower Society, where the, the, they gathered flowers at the tabernacle, arranged them into lovely baskets and bouquets, and, and took them to the homes of the sick and to the hospitals. The Christian Brothers Benefit Society, the Female Servants Home Society, the Nurse Society, where nurses functioned from the tabernacle. Mrs. Spurgeon maintained a Bible nurse at her own expense as part of this. The Blind Society, the Ladies' Benevolent Society, that met in the, they met in a sewing circle to make clothes for the children of the orphanage, the, for the poor of the congregation, and for other needy people in the area. The Tabernacle Evangelistic Society and Spurgeon's Sermon Tract Society, and on the list goes. At Spurgeon's funeral, which took place on February 11, 1892, one of the deacons, William Olney, stated this. He says, I've been asked to speak on the behalf of the many missionary workers. Our dear pastor, whom God has taken to himself, had a remarkable power for infusing his own love for souls into the hearts of hearers. In response to his trumpet calls to Christian energy, from this platform, men went out of this congregation in hundreds to fling themselves into the slums of South London and bring in members to this church out of some of the lowest parts of the neighborhood. As a consequence of this, there are today 23 mission stations and 26 branch schools, and at these places there are every Sunday evening about 1,000 members of this church working for the Lord Jesus Christ among the poor. Charles Haddon Spurgeon went to glory when he was 57 years old. Over 50,000 people had filed by the casket that lay in the common room of the college. Five funeral services were planned, four on Wednesday, February 10th. The first was for church members. The second for ministers and students. The third for Christian workers. And the fourth for the general public. And the final morning, uh, uh, or the following morning, the final service was held where the body was transported to Norwood Cemetery Thousands lined the route, and at the orphanage, a stand was erected for the children to stand and to sing while the body passed, but they could only weep. He loved people, and they knew it. He trained his people to love people, and they knew it. I think there's some lessons we can learn from the ministry of the tabernacle under Spurgeon's life and influence. They mesh beautifully with what our brother Hendricks said in the earlier hour. May we be so encouraged, brethren, 
to live as men of God in love with the Savior and in love with people. And teach our people to do the same. To love God and to love the lost. The people all around us of all types and conditions. And endeavor with all of our energy for as long as God gives us to give ourselves to magnifying the name of God in the rescuing of perishing sinners by that glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father.